All right, welcome to the conversation on the TYT network. Um, from time to time, we focus on local elections. There's a reason for that because uh, those are the ones that wind up making all the difference when control of a state legislature, for example, is on the line. And it also uh, plants a seed for uh, folks who might become huge national figures later. So we've got an excellent case of that here in New York. Uh, I wanna welcome back Patrick Nelson. He was a just Democrat back in 2018. He worked on Bernie Sanders campaigns in 2016 and 2020. And now he's in a critical election that's a state Senate seat in New York in the 43rd district. Patrick, it's good to have you back on. Thank you for having me back, Cenk. Seems like an annual tradition at this point, And I always appreciate the opportunity to come here and for the impact that you and your audience have on some of the important issues throughout the state and the country. Uh, yeah, no problem. Thank you, brother. All right, let's so let's do it. Um, first of all, why is this forty third district in New York so important overall? Well, you know, I would say the last time I was on here, we were talking about in rather esoteric party rule, right? Um, that had an impact making that change. I think it probably helped Jamal Bowman and Mondaire Jones and down ballot progressives. But this time we're talking about no small thing. We're talking about the opportunity for universal healthcare, guaranteed healthcare for 20 million New Yorkers. Making the opportunity to make New York the first state that has a guaranteed healthcare system. We sit right now that a bill called the New York Health Act has passed the state assembly in 2015, 2016 and 2017. Always died in the state senate. And right now it is one vote away in terms of co-sponsorship from being able to pass the New York state senate. And I'm running to be that vote that puts that bill on the floor of the state Senate and sends it to the governor's desk. And this puts more pressure. I mean, if we make it work in New York, it's a great step forward for the country. It also puts pressure on California to get their bill to the governor's desk and get that signed. It shouldn't have taken a global pandemic for us to recognize that we need to guarantee healthcare as a right to everyone. But it certainly has made that case. Well, I hear that if we could make it in New York, you could make it anywhere. <laughs> so, but really, Patrick, your seat for that reason alone happens to be one of the most pivotal seats in the whole country, and and so, and it's a great source of frustration for me that blue states keep electing enough Republicans for them to be able to gum up the works and not allow for any progress. So they've got to stop electing Republicans. Yes, <laughs> right. And, and, so and in our district, it, it, it harms us. We have the least productive senator in the history of our district. And that's not just because she's in the minority, it's because she refuses to do the work on behalf of our district and actually deliver legislative results. So uh, let's, let's talk about uh, how winnable this race is. So you're up against a Republican incumbent. Mm-hmm. Um, so why do you think you got a shot at winning this? Well, this district, so four years ago, Hillary Clinton lost this district by 4,300 votes. This district has flipped 9,000 voters in terms of registration into the Democratic column. So where we were 8,000 fewer Democrats than Republicans four years ago, there's now 1,000, actually 1,100 more Democrats than Republicans enrolled in this district this year. Two years ago, Senator Gillibrand won this district. Comptroller Tom DiNapoli won this district. Democrats for Congress won this district. This is an opportunity to break through. Joe Biden is up 20 points in upstate New York. If we run a strong campaign, get our message out. It's resonating with folks. More than 50% of the people we talk to among persuadable voters are supporting our campaign when we ask them. So we just need the help to make more calls, send more text messages, get our digital ads out there and send the mail. 
And we've got a chance to flip this district and make a huge impact on the healthcare future of this country. And also on the political future, because it's a redistricting year. And we need to stop having gerrymandered Republican seats in the state of New York. And we also have to make sure that some of the more right wing Democrats don't target some of our newly elected progressives in the redistricting process as well. You know, um, folks yeah. like Jamal Bowman, Mondaire Jones, AOC, we want to make sure that everybody gets a fair shake and it's not a political process. Yeah, and, and so Patrick, um, let, let's talk about what would happen if you won. So at that point, you break the logjam and and um, you guys could pass the legislation. First of all, a lot of different legislation yes. uh, that, that is stalled because of the Republicans having enough power in the state Senate to block things. But let's start with the health care bill. What would that look like in New York? So it would, it's a framework right now for a guaranteed health care plan. We would need to work with Washington DC because part of the way we fund it is with current Medicare and Medicaid money. But it is a guaranteed top to bottom New York health program with no co-payments, no deductibles, every doctor in network. There, I think there's still some work to be done on this bill. I've been in conversations with Assemblymember Gottfried, Senator Gustavo Rivera, the lead sponsors in both chambers. You know, I want to devolve some of the power away from the governor and give it to the controller in certain areas. Um, but ultimately, we're talking about a, a, a guaranteed healthcare proposal um, that would also has the add-on benefit of lowering property taxes and freeing up local government revenues throughout the state. Thirty million dollars in Rensselaer County, six million dollars in Saratoga Springs. So this is good for businesses, good for local governments, good for my village board. Because uh, we're getting raked over the coals by private health insurance for our employees, so it's um, <laughs> good for entrepreneurs. I mean, you, you've probably faced the situation. I had it happen to me. Uh, I was working in a startup, and a friend of mine collapses in a grand mal seizure, and I'm going through that uniquely American calculation of you know when do I call 911, right? Because it's going to cost five thousand dollars. We just raised forty thousand dollars in angel investment, and a minute goes by, two minutes go by, and eventually I make the call. It did cost us that much. It was the right call to make, but nobody should be put in that position. And this is going to help make New York more attractive to businesses. Yes. Yeah, there's a lot of hidden advantages in universal health care that folks don't talk about, partly because the media companies get so much money from drug companies to do advertising, so they bury it. But one of them is that it ends big businesses' giant advantage over small business. Because big business has plenty of money to pay for healthcare, but it's very difficult for small businesses to do that. So it, it, it helps kill off the competition for giant corporations when you put it on employers. So there's just so many different facets to it. Patrick, they're keeping it real in New York. And I know you got to work with the governor and, mm-hmm. and he certainly got his upsides. But um, how do we know that if the Democrats have full control that Cuomo won't find another way to not do it? Well, he's kind of arguably has done that right now because we do have a Democratic majority, but we have right-leaning Democrats that are holding up some key progressive legislation. My district is well situated to solve some of that problem because it's a marginal district, and power within the conferences is driven. You know, the majority leader talks to the people who make the majority, and those aren't the districts in Manhattan and Queens; those are the districts in upstate New York and Long Island. So, as an upstate member. I've got an additional amount of influence in driving the direction of that conference in a progressive direction. And with the governor, he has said he will sign this legislation if it hits his desk. Time will tell. 
Um, but that's why I would recommend that we not just get to 32 votes. I mean, please help us get to 32 votes. Um, but support other down ballot progressive candidates throughout the state of New York as well, so that we build a strong uh, coalition. And a lot of folks upstate, uh, including like Rachel May and Jen Metzger, uh, support the bill. A number of candidates, myself, Teresa McCalman, uh, are also supporting it. So we've got a chance to um, have additional control there and a veto proof majority uh, that the governor will have to contend with, uh, which will diminish his power over the budget and diminish his power over legislation and put the people. Uh, more in charge in the direction of the state rather than just the executive. And then one more advantage is having a progressive win upstate gives power to progressives that rather than the moderates who usually run in what is what are considered swing districts within New York. Yep. So that's another huge reason to support Patrick. Nelsonfornewyork.com, by the way, is the website. Nelsonfornewyork.com. That's NY. Well, Nelson for NY.com. Mm-hmm. And we'll put the links down below if you're watching later on YouTube or Facebook. So, Patrick, we, we talked a lot about healthcare. What are some of the other issues that you think you can make an impact on if you win this critical seat in New York? Well, let's, we talked about internet last time, so let's talk about that again. Um, we have a huge problem with broadband connectivity uh, throughout the 43rd district in rural areas. Um, and I back a, uh, a public version of this. I'm a village trustee in Sillwater. We have public water, we have public sewer. Uh, if Verizon and AT&T don't wanna do the job, why can't we have public internet? Um, but what this does also is creates a model for, you know, if we can do it in Ghent and Stuyvesant and Steventown and some of these far out rural areas, we can also do it in the five boroughs and have public internet authorities that deliver high speed internet at lower costs. We know we pay some of the highest prices in the industrialized world. You know, We talked a little bit about redistricting. Um, we have very progressive climate legislation here in the state of New York, but it's a framework and goals. And we have to take a framework and goals and turn it into actual programs. And that's one of the things that we can also do in this area because you know, with everything that COVID-19 has shown us, uh, pales in comparison to what a climate catastrophe could cause uh, in this country and in this world. And we've got to start flattening that curve as well. So Patrick, we have very little time, just real quick. If there is uh, one way that folks across the country could help you and hence help progressives get these victories in a, in a critical state like New York, what would it be? Uh, head over to the website. If you can volunteer, volunteer. If you can make a contribution of any size, it's absolutely helpful. We're only about $30,000 behind my opponent in terms of fundraising. And that is money she carried over from last cycle. We've actually held her neck and neck this cycle. And your viewers and this great network of progressives has the ability to help put us over the top and close that gap. Um, So that would be a great thing to do. All right, Patrick Nelson running in a critical seat in New York. I appreciate you coming on again. Thank you again, Cenk. And uh, thanks to everybody out there watching. All right, back on the conversation on the TYT network. Got an interesting guest with an interesting book for you guys. Uh, you might recognize him, Ms. Brian Stelter. He's the chief media correspondent for CNN and obviously does reliable sources. The show I've been on a couple of times. His new book is Hoax, the untold story of Trump and Fox News. It's now a New York Times bestseller. Brian, welcome to TYT. This is my first time here. Thank you, I'm honored to be here. Uh, no, great to have you. So uh, let me start with a funny question. Um, when did you? When did it first occur to you? Like, there's some chance Fox News might not be on the level. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, it's not actually fair and balanced anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look, I mean, obviously, in 1996, when the channel launched, that slogan was cynical back then, and it's much more cynical now. The channel's always been conservative. It's always bent to the right. What sources at Fox said to me was that 
in the Trump years, it's fallen over. It's not right leaning, it's fallen over. The channel has gone off the rails. There were so many sources coming to me saying, Brian, something's wrong at our channel that I feel like I had to write this book now because the channel's become an arm of the Trump administration. And as much as the channel was conservative in the Bush years, as much as it was anti-Obama in the Obama years, it's even worse now. Yeah, how many sources did you have inside Fox? Well, originally I was talking to people in my normal course of work covering the news at CNN. And as I started to think about doing a book, I called more and more people to the point where I talked to about 140 people inside Fox and about more than 180 outside Fox. This means former staffers, agents, managers, you know, there's a lot of people that are in and around Fox World, because this is a massive global corporation. So what really surprised me was how many people wanted to talk to me. There are so many folks inside Fox who are worried about the direction of the network. So well, that's the interesting thing, right? Because in cable news, Fox is kind of a fascinating creature. I think for folks outside of cable news, Fox has always been fairly clear. I remember when me and my dad were Republicans and my dad called me one day and said, Jake, I think Bill O'Reilly full of crap. Uh, <laughs> I said, really? Uh, because you know, we're both Republicans at that point. I, said, I was curious about it. He's like, yeah, I don't think I don't think he's telling the truth. Um, and but when I was at MSNBC, Brian, a lot of folks there used to work at Fox News, and right. so was that part of the reticence you think to call out Fox News uh, because they've been doing this for quite some time. Well, I think Fox has always been viewed as one of these major networks with lots in common with CNN and MSNBC, even though it's conservative. For example, Fox is in the White House press pool, right? Fox has its turn in the press pool. Fox has all those sorts of roles that make it one of the big institutional players in American media. That's been true for 20 years. I think what's different in the Trump years is the channel's most popular shows are propaganda. Sean Hannity is propaganda, Tucker's propaganda. In a way, they never were, even in the Obama years, because now they are working with the Trump administration. Now they are working with the president. And that has caused a lot of consternation. For example, folks at NBC, or you mentioned news work at MSNBC. I had executives at NBC say to me, we get a lot of resumes from people at Fox, but we don't hire many of them anymore because it's a different kind of business. We view that as a lifestyle brand. What an interesting way to view Fox News, right? A lifestyle brand. Yeah. Well, look, there's the other phenomenon too. Of there's the people who used to work at Fox News, but then you know your predecessor Howard Kurtz at you know was reliable sources. Then he got a job at Fox News, probably a lucrative one, and and that that was a factor. But now, if if folks are not hiring out of Fox News, that is going to be that's a sea change, and I think it can make a, a, a big, big Well, I think big what difference. we're seeing is the opposite. We're seeing the opposite now. We're seeing people leave Fox and looking for jobs elsewhere. So about a dozen people that I describe in hoax who went, who left the network because they couldn't take all the Trump propaganda anymore. Now, some of these names we know, like Shepard Smith, who joined CNBC. Others are anonymous. You know, Others are producers who will never be household names, but they felt like they didn't really fit in at Fox anymore. I think what's happened is the incentive structure at Fox is all wrong now. It's all about serving the dear leader. And that is damaging in the short term and in the long term um, you know, to both Fox and Trump. So let's break down the word propaganda because I think that's really interesting. And I think there's, it's got layers. So if 
and I might have a slightly different point of view than you do on this because I think the issue is their outrageous lies as opposed to them brazenly supporting Donald Trump. So if they say, if Sean Hannity says, look, I'm a talk show host and I'm a pundit and a commentator. And yeah, I talk to President Trump from time to time. And yes, I give him advice and we agree. And this is my point of view. I actually don't have any problem with that as long as he doesn't twist the facts. Um, do you think that's a problem in and of itself? I think we're moving toward a world of more and more a point of view media. And there's gonna be lots more of it on the left and lots more on the right. And it's not necessarily bad at all. I think it's probably part of a diverse political world. And I think a lot of people prefer it this way. I think the problem with Hannity is when he says one thing off the air, Another thing on the air. Yeah. When he's talking to Hannity, when he was talking to Trump, sorry, I mixed them up a lot because they're basically the same now. <laughs> when when Hannity's talking to Trump on the phone, but then not sharing the conversations on the air, that's a problem. When Hannity is telling his friends that Trump is crazy, but then praising Trump on the air, that is a problem. And so I think it's the hypocrisy that is the the fundamental problem at Fox. I would also add this: um, on Fox, Trump gets the benefit of the doubt. They pretend like his words are always truthful. They assume he's always telling the truth. And that is a fundamentally broken concept. Maybe that would have worked for past presidents, maybe, although there's a long history of presidential mendacity, but it doesn't work with Trump. And it's the fact that they give him the benefit of the doubt and pretend like he's always being the honest, truthful leader, it, it shows how broken Fox is. Yeah, so I agree with that 100%. If if Hannity thinks that Trump is crazy and he tells his audience that Trump is awesome, well, that's pretty much the definition of propaganda. Um, and so, um, well, but let's dive a little further in. So, folks will say, yeah, but um, and and I would come close to saying this at, at, at MSNBC if if they go outside of a Democratic talking point, it it is news. And it'll it'll go online like, wow, Rachel Maddow said something that that Democrats don't necessarily agree with. Um, so, where do we put that on the spectrum? Well, I think one of the big differences I see between MSNBC and Fox in the Trump age is that MSNBC is pro-journalism and Fox is anti-journalism. And what I mean by that is. Sean Hannity says journalism is dead, and he says it's all fake news. And basically, what Hannity is doing is he's saying only trust me. Don't go anywhere else. It's a way of closing off the conversation. Whereas someone like Rachel Maddow or the other host on MSNBC, they will interview New York Times reporters and Washington Post reporters and they will say, go subscribe to your local paper. I think what MSNBC wants is a more healthy ecosystem. I think what Fox wants is a closed ecosystem where you only watch Fox. And that is a big problem. Now, look, Jake, I think there should probably be an entire book about MSNBC. There's a lot of issues. At MSNBC, and I think it, I, I would read that book in a heartbeat. Um, I think Fox is special, though, because of its link to the Trump administration. And frankly, I think Fox is in charge a lot of the time. You know, Fox is setting the agenda for the president, and we've never seen that before. Like, did you ever see that with MSNBC and Obama, where it was like MSNBC was telling Obama what to do? No, but it did work the other way. Um, so I, they, oh. <laughs> when when I was a host there, they literally dissuaded me from criticizing the president. They did it in subtle ways, they did it in non-subtle ways. But I had the one 
Uh, well, there's the, the famous, not famous, but famous to me, but <laughs> to our audience, maybe. <laughs> but the speech that Phil Griffin gave me about, uh, you know, Washington's not happy about your tone. But I think the more interesting example is when I was on air and and it was covering Obama's live uh, press conference about uh, the Egyptian Revolution. Uh, so that dates wow. me. Uh, and uh, and and I said, well, I'm going to keep it real about what President Obama had, uh, just said because he had yeah. supported Mubarak and the revolution. And my producer was in my ear immediately saying, don't, don't do it. And then there was a whole conversation about when is it kosher to criticize the president? Um, so wow, yeah, well, no, that definitely happens. right here and now on the Young Turks. If that ever happens to me and someone's in my ear at CNN saying that, I'll tell the viewers. Because you know, in the same way that you've told it, the same way that you've shared it, because um, yeah, that's that's a big problem. I remember the first week of the Trump administration being at CNN, and uh, someone from the White House called to complain about me, and I was told about the call just as a courtesy, but it was it was more in just a in a you know what a, what a crazy world sort of way. You know what I mean? Like it's good to know when people complain, but it should never affect our our coverage. Yeah, and, and so Brian, I, I'm gonna let's talk about CNN just a little bit. Uh, and look, your your book uh, is going to be well received by our audience. Uh, and the fact that you've got all those sources inside of Fox News makes it even more interesting. So it's not, I, I don't know if it's controversial in other places, but uh, for the TYT audience, right, uh, writing a book about Fox News called Hoax is not controversial, but in a good way. It's it's uh, you know it's illustrative, it's important. That it's documented and on the record. Um, so let's do it. But <laughs> no, no, no. That it's so I, I find it uncontroversial. So sure, real yeah. quick uh, on CNN, uh, it's I think that it's fair to say that does CNN have a centrist bias? And, and so I wanted to ask you about that. So hey, look, we if we're saying hey, we're not with the right wing and we're not with the left wing, well, it's still is a perspective, and in fact, it almost privileges that perspective as as the the objective one. When folks, right, including myself, one, would say that's not necessarily one. correct. Right, that's the safe place to be. Look, I, I think it's important to have people like you calling out this issue. I really mean that. I think that criticism, constructive criticism, makes CNN better. When Sean Hannity is on the air calling me Humpty Dumpty, that's just stupid juvenile nonsense, you know. But when people point out how political stories are framed and how narratives are framed, that is important because that's a gut check for reporters to make sure they're being fair and make sure they're they're not viewing it the way they always have. Here's here's where I'm hopeful. I, I think that the Trump years have caused a lot of journalists, especially at CNN, to have a more adversarial, aggressive approach toward the government. And that doesn't just mean the Trump administration, that means the government, right? What we've seen in the past four years is how many lies and how many, how many, you know, how, how much nonsense comes out of these government agencies, not just from Trump, but from other agencies. And what I hope and what I believe is that that more adversarial approach is gonna, gonna long live past the Trump years. And if it doesn't, then you need to call us out on that because an adversarial approach is the right approach for the national news media. Yeah, from your mouth to God's ears, or maybe CNN know, executive right? ears. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Because look, Brian, look, I'm obviously very direct with the audience, and I want Trump to lose with the heat of a thousand suns. 
but but if Biden wins, it's super important for the media not to go back to sleep. They they can need to continue to be adversarial and challenge the government to make sure that he's also telling the truth and and doing the things that he said he would do. So I hope that stays in that case. And I hope that it has these Trump years in a silver lining of it might be the more adversarial nature of media because I think it's supposed to be that way. But but your book's an important part of that. It's called Hoax, everybody check it out. Brian Stelter, host of Reliable Sources. Thank you so much for joining us, Brian, really appreciate it. Thank you, hope to be back on the conversation someday, thanks.